Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and all the other stuff. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, which is all about archaeology and ancient abandoned cities. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of Victories Greater Than Death, a brand new young adult novel out in April about a group of teenagers who leave Earth and go off to save all of the worlds. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a very big subject, kaiju or giant monsters. We're going to be talking about where these giant monsters come from, what they mean, what our feelings are about them. And this is all kicked off, of course, because the new Godzilla versus King Kong movie is coming very soon. And it's really brought up a lot of thoughts. So stay tuned for the biggest subject we could ever tackle. why do we love kaiju so much? I mean, my love starts from when I was a kid, and I watched all the giant monster movies on TV as a little kid. I watched some of them in the drive-in. These were all Japanese giant monster movies that had been dubbed into English, oftentimes given new names that weren't direct translations of the Japanese names at all, confusingly. And many of those movies had lots of um, edits done to them to, to Americanize them. And so it was this weird blend of like American and Japanese pop culture, perhaps in a kind of a non-consensual way and <laughs> not non-consensual blend. King Kong versus Godzilla is, of course, very famously one of the most messed up of the American imports because so much crap was added to it, which we'll talk about later. For me, it was just as a little kid, I loved thinking about creatures who were the biggest possible thing in the universe. Because when you're a kid, of course, you're, you feel like you're one of the littlest possible things in the universe. And so I just, I really, really identified with these monsters, especially Ghidorah, but Godzilla too. So where does your love of kaiju come from? I mean, it's kind of similar. When I was a little kid, uh, our local kind of UHF station, this is, wow, taking us back in time to when there were UHF stations. Our local UHF station had a thing called the Creature Double Feature. Ooh. It was basically like on Saturdays, they would show like two kind of monster movies. And mostly they were giant monster movies. Sometimes they were like regular size monster movies. But it was a lot of like kaiju and creatures and giant spiders and giant whatever is like smashing stuff. And I love the kind of disaster movie aspect of it. I love the fact that it's just like, ah, run, everything's breaking. Everything's like, it's just super exciting to watch that as a little kid and as an adult, honestly. Mm -hmm. To some extent, part of what's fun about these monster movies and these giant monster movies and kaiju movies especially is that they're kind of like apocalyptic movies on kind of steroids. Like most apocalyptic movies are like, okay, there's zombies or there's some disaster and everything is breaking down. But 
you know, you don't get that kind of cathartic thing of just like buildings being knocked over and like telephone wires or, you know, electricity wires like sparking and flying everywhere. And like, you know, just the kind of bigness and like raw, reckless abandon of like everything being destroyed and just, you know, the pure, like joyful kind of rage of like a kaiju just like stomping through a city and stomping everything. It's just, you know, it's kind of like liberating and fun and exciting to just watch that. Even though in real life, you probably wouldn't really want that to happen to your city, but you know. Absolutely not. It's a fun, it's an exciting fantasy and it's just, it's really kind of, it's just kind of freeing to see that. I think joyful is such a great word for it. Like there is something and I I can't fully explain it and maybe we'll get to understanding it by the end of this episode, but it is that sense of when I see the big monster come on screen, I'm filled with joy, just pure happiness. Yeah. So, okay. Where do kaiju movies come from originally or where, where does the idea of kaiju come from originally? So this is a big question. And I think there's sort of two origin stories for them. I want to say the first origin story is King Kong, which is a film that comes out in 1933 in the United States King Kong is a giant gorilla, and he lives on Skull Island, which in almost every version of the King Kong story, including um, the Japanese version where King Kong fights Godzilla, Skull Island is somewhere vaguely in Indonesia somehow, off the coast of Indonesia or in distant islands of the Indonesian chain. So it's a Southeast Asian creature, and it was a huge hit, um, the the film. Uh, it was a special effects blockbuster. King Kong was made with stop motion. And also at the time, gorillas themselves were a huge pop culture obsession. They pop up in a ton of movies. Um, Mighty Joe Young is another gorilla movie with a more normal-sized uh, gorilla made by the same special effects artist who made King Kong. Gorillas had only recently been discovered by non-African people in the late 19th century. Like Africans obviously knew about gorillas, but people outside Africa had not known about them. And so people were just obsessed with gorillas. So anyway, King Kong becomes really popular. Um, It really, it's exported. It goes all over the world. And then you see a second origin story for giant monster movies, which really are post-atomic and these, this is the wave of giant monster stories that kind of start with Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, which is a 1953 film. That's the year before the first Godzilla film comes out. And Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is also about a giant lizard brought back to life with atomic weapons. So after that, obviously Godzilla becomes a huge hit. And suddenly you see this wave of giant monsters, atomic monsters. So you have like tarantula, you have them, you have giant teenagers, like (laughs) 50-foot women, and not all of them can be traced back to atomic um, accidents, but it becomes a big trend in the 1950s and and a little bit in the 60s as well. Right. That's that's kind of the beginning. And we're kind of processing, I guess, the trauma of World War II and also just, you know, in America, I think we're processing like both the fear of nuclear weapons, now that we've used them on other people, they might get used on us, but also kind of the, I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but the United States was really like becoming like the world's preeminent superpower for the first time ever in like the 1950s um, after, you know, we won World War II basically. And Mm -hmm. so we were like the giant monster that everybody else had to deal with. And so like there's kind of a double-edged sword of like, 
the giant monsters represent this destructive power that we're terrified of, but also that we possess and that is kind of our exclusive preserve for a little while during that era. And of course, Japanese culture is, you know, full of like giant monsters going back to, you know, Shintoism and to traditional theater. And you have this whole yokai tradition of like giant octopi and other giant creatures. And so, you know, there wasn't a Japanese tradition that something like Godzilla and other giant monsters could kind of slot into. Yeah, that's right. And when we were doing some research last night, we found out that the word yokai, the word kai in there, which means kind of mysterious or strange, is also in the word kaiju, which is sort of mysterious, strange beast. So they have the same, yokai and kaiju have the same root word. Also, Gojira owes his or her or their existence, we don't really know what Gojira's gender is, um, to both King Kong and Atomic Horror. Uh, Of course, Gojira is resurrected by this kind of atomic weapons testing, but the name Gojira is a portmanteau of two Japanese words, gorira for gorilla and kujira for whale. So it basically means gorilla whale. And so the gorilla part is clearly a hat tip to King Kong. So Gojira has been around for over 60 years. How, How have they changed in this time? And how has their influence kind of and their role in pop culture changed? So I just want to start by playing something that's probably really familiar to everyone, which is Gojira's traditional cry, battle cry or hello cry. We don't even know. As soon as you hear that, you immediately know who you're dealing with. Gojira is an interesting franchise in that it's had a lot of ups and downs and it's had multiple reboots. In fact, Gojira, I feel like, is the most rebooty of almost any franchise I can think of. I'm sure there's others. But basically, Gojira is born in the 1954 film. And then they're kind of killed at the end of that film. And then Toho Studios, which eventually kind of specialized in kaiju films, um, made a couple of other kaiju films after that, including one with like a a knockoff Gojira in it. Like not the original Gojira, but like a cousin (laughs) who fights an Ankylosaurus. And then that series kind of got a reboot with King Kong versus Gojira when Gojira comes back. And then that goes on up through the 70s with highlights such as Gojira versus the Smog Monster and Son of Gojira and stuff like that. And then there's a reboot in 1984, and there's a new Gojira series, which is totally just erases the previous, all those previous series, and goes through basically the 90s. Then there's another reboot in 1999, and you get a new series of Gojira films, which become increasingly silly. I mean, there were also some silly ones in the in the 1990s, if anyone remembers Gojira versus Biolante, which is Godzilla fighting a giant rose. Um, and then there's another reboot in 2016 with Shin Gojira, um, which was made by the people who created Neon Genesis Evangelion. So it's very weird, um, and it has a totally different kind of Gojira monster who goes through different evolutions and has a really different relationship with humanity. And then I'm just going to keep going. And then there's another reboot. Actually, well, this might not be as much of a reboot. So there's a new animated trilogy uh, that started in 2017 with the movie 
Godzilla Planet of the Monsters, which is set 20,000 years in the future after Gojira has taken over Earth and there's like a group of humans and aliens who are trying to recolonize the Earth. And that's a trilogy. It's all animated. It's like it's like CGI animation. It's actually great and completely confusing and batshit insane. Highly recommend it. You can see them all on Netflix. And there's going to be another reboot this year with an anime TV series called Godzilla Singular Point, which is a great name. I have no idea where they're taking it. Um, I've seen some art from it. I, who knows? Anyway, um, the characters look really cute. It's not like the Planet of the Monsters trilogy, which is kind of more um, uh, intended to be kind of more realistic. This is much more like a cartoony uh, feeling to it. I mean, even though they're both animation. And then, of course, there's the American Godzilla movies. There was the 90s Godzilla movie, which let's all pretend didn't happen. And then the more recent Godzilla movies. So we've had our own reboot of Godzilla in the U.S. Like we had the first U.S. Godzilla. We don't think about that anymore. And then with the new Godzilla series, which starts with Godzilla, and then we had Godzilla versus Ghidorah, and now we have Godzilla versus King Kong. That's its own little entity unrelated to the... Toho Studios, <laughs> so what I'm trying to say, my dear Charlie Jane, is that this is a complicated series. It's full of reboots. It's full of contradictions. Gojira can be whatever you want them to be, and apparently whatever size you want them to be, and it's a, a continuous delight, and it's both confusing and exhilarating. Yeah, I mean, there's a Godzilla for every occasion. You know, it's interesting to thinking about all these reboots. Like, okay, so when they rebooted Superman in the 80s, part of why they rebooted Superman was explicitly because it had just gotten too complicated. Like, Superman had, like, you know, there were other super characters who were running around. There were Superboy, there were Supergirl. Superman had, like, a super monkey. He had a super dog. He had a super cat named <laughs> Streaky the super cat. Really? He had, yeah, Streaky the super wow. cat. Maybe Supergirl had the super cat. I can't remember. There was the super cat. There I was love like, that. A, there was just all this insane stuff. Superman had all these weird powers that he didn't use to have, like super hypnosis and super speed reading <laughs> and super, like, you know. And it's just, it got like to the point where, like, it was just getting kind of ridiculous and over the top and just like there was too much stuff, but especially there was just a, a lot of, like, stuff attached to Superman. And I feel like maybe something similar happened to Gojira where like you have Monster Island and you have like all these, like you have like a special organization that's like the monster organization Mm -hmm. and you have like, you know, special (laughs) like, and just, you know, is it the case that just Gojira got like so much baggage and so much complicated world building attached to him that it was no longer as pure as it perhaps could have been? Yeah, maybe clear the decks. I mean, certainly I think with the 1980s reboot, there was definitely that sense that Gojira had become too silly. And there were so many monsters. Like there had there were just it was a crazy, it was, it really was like the DC universe, you know, where it was like how many monsters? Um, and and they're all and they all have weird origins and they're contradictory. Like some of them are from space and some of them are from the under the earth, and some of them are from the past, and like, you know, and then there's Mecha Gojira and Mecha Ghidorah, and like it just gets really silly. And so in the 80s film, there was this effort to kind of make Gojira scary again and kind of imposing again and redesign the monster. Um, But interestingly, 
that series that goes on into the 90s, like, ends up kind of just reinventing a lot of the same old monsters. So we get baby Gojira again, who in the 90s is called Junya. And Junya, instead of looking like the original baby Gojira, who's just got this, like, little funny, like, round face and is always like, quah, quah, and that's the noise (laughs) that they make, the new Junya looks just like a mini Gojira. So it's not, you know, it's a little bit more stately, shall we say. And uh, and then Ghidorah comes back and a bunch of other bad guys. But you never get the silliness of something like the Smog Monster from the early 70s. Instead, you get stuff like Biolante, like I said, a giant. Not silly at all. Rose. <laughs> Biolante, I, I still think it's one of the best of the, of the 90s Gojira because it is so unexpected. And it's about a genetic experiment where like a rose is spliced with G cells um, from the big G. And you get a, a rose, sla- half rose, half Gojira. Rose. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> Biolante. I think that that's part of it. I think it's wanting to have Gojira for a new generation. And certainly that's the case with Shin Gojira from 2016. It's a totally different monster, clearly um, influenced by things like Pokemon with the evolutions. And also it's just a very different world. Like the human characters are really different. I I think looking at the human stories in these movies, we always talk about how boring the human stories are, but that kind of gives you a sense of kind of where people are at in terms of the stories they want these monsters to intervene in. So, which actually segues nicely to talking about King Kong versus Gojira, um, which is a very, very strange story. Yeah, so we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the clash of the Titans. Titans, Titans. Okay, so Allie, like, you know, ever since I was a little kid and I learned about the existence of King Kong versus Godzilla, which felt like the most kind of bizarre and fascinating crossover, and I must have seen it as a kid, but I have no memory of it. You know, how did this come about? How did we end up putting these two very different creatures together? And, you know, what did that movie end up being? It's such an interesting story. So at the time that the original came out, which is 1963, there hadn't been a Godzilla movie in about nine years. And I I should just acknowledge that I'm going back and forth between the American pronunciation and the sort of approximation of a Japanese pronunciation. And that's just how it's going to be. So Toho Studios, which owned Godzilla, really had been focusing on other monsters. They created Rodan, who's like a flying pterodactyl kind of creature, and uh, Ghidorah, obviously the most important monster in the Pantheon, who has three heads and can shoot lightning and is just super badass. And what happened was there was a special effects artist named Willis O'Brien, who created the original stop motion for King Kong, and he was kicking around in Hollywood trying to come up with a new monster idea. So he went to a a kind of a underhanded producer and pitched that producer King Kong versus Frankenstein, which for some reason <laughs> he thought would be great. So the producer, and also at this time, Willis O'Brien was, was kind of ill and, and wasn't you know, able to kind of pursue this stuff himself. So this producer goes off and pitches this idea, idea around Hollywood. Hollywood is like, no, we don't, we don't care about King Kong or Frankenstein. Um, remember, there hadn't been a King Kong movie since 1933. Um, and Frankenstein had also become kind of silly by the 1940s. So 
So this producer goes to Toho, goes over to Japan um, and pitches it to them and is like, hey, don't you guys want to do this? And Toho says, actually, yeah, we love the idea of King Kong. Let's do that. But uh, it's impossible to get the intellectual property rights to Frankenstein. That's too complicated. There was a whole set of um, internecine things about like who owned Frankenstein on film, even though the novel would have been in the public domain. So Toho was like, fuck that. We already own great IP. We own Godzilla. So why don't we have King Kong versus Godzilla? So they're like, great. So they make the film. And then this producer has the right to take it back to the States and do whatever he wants with it. So there's this 1963 Japanese film, which I'll get into in a second. And then there's the 1964 American version, which like the 1954 uh, Godzilla, they add American actors in, like basically white guys to come in and be like, hello, I am a white guy. Let me explain the action to you. Um, (laughs) And that barely worked in the American version of the 1954 Gojira, which comes out in 1955 in the U.S., in King Kong versus Godzilla, it makes the movie incoherent. They added, like, a bunch of characters who were, like, U.N. reporters who are, like, reporting in from different U.N. stations about what's happening with the monsters. They cut out a bunch of the subplots in the Japanese version that actually make the movie make sense. And they also totally changed the soundtrack. So the soundtrack to King Kong versus Gojira is very, it's very much like the original Godzilla. It's very, like, um, you know, uh, intense and, like, there's lots of drums and it, it feels very, like, momentous, you know? The American version, they basically had access to a bunch of music from whatever studio was re- was releasing it and they just recycled a bunch of music from, like, super cheesy American movies. <laughs> and so it's just this weird hodgepodge of, like, goofy comic music and... Um, It really changes the film a lot. So let's not even talk about the American version because the American version is just dumb. It's like, you can't even tell what's happening. It's basically just the two monsters fighting. What's interesting is the Japanese version is all about how there's a pharmaceutical company called Pacific Pharmaceuticals that has an advertising branch. And the advertising branch of the pharmaceutical company is trying to promote I guess science. Um, It's not clear. They have a science TV show and it opens with this this pharmaceutical executive yelling at his underlings saying, we need something to make people watch our science show because our science show (laughs) is dropping in the ratings. It's so boring. And what are we going to do? And they get wind of this scientist who's gone to this remote island, which is They call it Pharaoh Island, but it's Skull Island. And this guy has come, the scientist has come back with these little red berries, which are a non-addictive narcotic. So you'd think that the plot would be all about how the pharmaceutical company wants the berries, because that's like a great drug. But no, the plot is that they want to send some representatives from the science show to the island to find this giant monster that eats the berries on the island. Fuck the berries, okay? It's all about this giant monster is going to boost the ratings for their science show, which will then make people want to buy pharmaceuticals from this from Pacific Pharmaceutical Company. So it's like this great, and that entire plot is basically removed from the U.S. version. I mean, it's kind of in there, but it's very 
we don't see the whole thing about the science TV show. There's none of that stuff. So these two untrained, basically like TV personality guys go over there and they actually have a moment where they're like, are we trained for this? Like, is this a good idea? And they're like, hmm. (laughs) So they go. And of course, the usual stuff happens. They find King Kong and stuff like that. And it kind of replays a lot of the standard King Kong tropes. And um, like the American movie that's coming out, this is not a spoiler if you've seen the you know ads for the movie, um, they wind up bringing King Kong back to the mainland to fight Godzilla because Godzilla is rampaging and we don't know why. Same thing in the 1963 movie. I, I don't think they ever figure out why Godzilla is rampaging. He's been awakened after near death from the oxygen destroyer in 1954. And he kind of breaks out of Arctic ice and just starts running around and eventually, they wind up on Mount Fuji, as you do. Um, <laughs> and King Kong has grown 200 meters or something for no reason and has developed it's lightning the powers. The berries, I don't know. Also has lightning powers. Looks absolutely nothing like the original King Kong that O'Brien made, uh, the guy who originally pitched this film. And they fight on Mount Fuji and they fall into the water and that's the end. Okay, so that's a spoiler. There's a lot of um, nitpicks about this Japanese film that have come up again with the American film that I think is really interesting. So if you think about it, King Kong versus Gojira in 1963 is a version of what the U.S. did in 1999 with Godzilla, which is to say the Japanese took a classic American monster and created a Japanese version of it. And one way that they did that was they didn't use claymation technology. And so instead, King Kong is a guy in a suit, just like Godzilla. And fans just hated that. They were like, what? King Kong, American fans, I mean, hated that. Because they're like, King Kong can't, can't be a guy in a suit. It looks ridiculous. But to Japanese audiences used to kaiju movies, where they were like, oh, yeah, this is, this is our kind of monster now. But I love the fact that despite the fact that they've imported the monster, you know, from the United States, and they've changed the look of the monster and kind of changed his motivations. One thing that doesn't change is that King Kong comes from an Indonesian island. Like both the United States and Japan can agree the most exotic location for an, a scary monster is definitely Indonesia. And in the 1963 King Kong versus Gojira, there's a lot of incredibly painful scenes of Japanese people in blackface who are supposed to look like Indonesians who are worshiping. no. Oh, God. I mean, remember the original King Kong in 1933 and the Peter Jackson remake in 2005 both had really icky blackface stuff, too. And so that's just part of the the story. And it really wasn't until (sighs) the, the movie Kong Skull Island, which came out a few years ago, that you didn't have that anymore. You still have kind of, you know, native people worshiping King Kong, but they're not it's the stereotypes are not as like flagrantly disgusting. They're just kind of more mild. So if, if you can even say that, uh, so, (laughs) but anyway, so there's like Japanese blackface, which is Indonesians. And so that's kind of how it unfolds. And the thing that I think is interesting. And the reason I emphasized this narrative about the science TV show and the pharmaceutical company is that King Kong, the original King Kong story and nearly every subsequent story is about anxieties around entertainment and display, like Mm -hmm. the display of wild animals, like on the midway at a carnival, for example. The original King Kong movie is about a filmmaker who wants to go out into an exotic location to film 
and stumbles upon King Kong and brings King Kong back as a piece of entertainment. So it's not an allegory for, say, war or the atomic bomb. Or like science. Kajira. They're not trying to study him. Right, or even science. Exactly. That's such an important point. It's about wanting to gawk at him. It's about display and spectacle and objectification and all of the the horror of that and King Kong's rebellion against it. We kind of get it. Like, you know, we kind of get why he's he's mad. And so I think it's interesting that in the kaiju genre, which up until that movie was largely about these kinds of fears around atomics, these fears around war and and battle and like issues around how we treat nature, suddenly it's all about the entertainment industry and the way the entertainment industry overlaps with science, which is like amazing. (laughs) It's just like, it's 1963 and they're making fun of pharmaceutical companies. So I think that We'll have to see. I have obviously have not seen the new film, but that's the deep history of the film. So interesting. And, you know, part of what I think is like foundational to King Kong as a character is that he's like Frankenstein. In fact, he's kind of a tragic hero. He's kind of like misunderstood. He's abused. He's kind of like he wants love. He wants Fay Ray or whatever. He wants Mm -hmm. he wants a bride. It's weird that, you know, King Kong versus Frankenstein would have been a really kind of terrible fight like i can't even imagine how you would stage that fight like i can't I, even yeah like, how would that work <laughs> what, what, what what's what's what kind of weapon does frankenstein have does he have a breath weapon does he have electricity like a, he has electricity i guess he does he does he shoot lightning? i mean he could i mean obviously this would have been a reboot of frankenstein so my guess would be my guess would be it would have been a bigger frankenstein with electricity powers for sure Actually, yeah. that sounds kind of interesting. But, you know, the thing that I, I'm having a hard time picturing the mechanics of King Kong versus Frankenstein, but I think thematically they're both kind of misunderstood victimized monsters who are kind of like are victims of like our hubris and our kind of like folly or whatever versus mm-hmm. I don't think of Godzilla that way. I haven't seen as much Godzilla material as you have, but I think of Godzilla as being like this badass who can't be contained, can't be exploited can't be stopped. And so I almost feel like a King Kong versus Gojira movie should be about Gojira teaching King Kong to have more self-respect or to stand up for himself more or something, or like giving him media training and like being like, well, you don't have to do all the media stuff that people are trying to get you to do. You, you should get an agent and you should like, you know, I don't know. Well, I wanted to segue into our next segment where we actually talk about the meaning of all this in more depth. But yes. I, before we switch over, I wanted to put to rest a rumor that has long persisted about the um, 1963 King Kong versus Gojira, which is that there is a different ending for the Japanese version versus the American version. There is, in fact, not a different ending. The American version is significantly different, but the ending is the same. It ends with a draw. The monsters fight and fight and fight. And then they fall into the ocean and go their separate ways. So they're equally, they're an equal match. And uh, it is not about which country can beat the other country. And it doesn't end with either of them realizing that their mothers have the same first name or anything or, you know, Martha! Sorry, I just said (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It doesn't, strangely. Strangely, no. So we're going to take a little short And then when we come back, we're going to talk about, like, the meaning of giant monster fights.
So what do these kaiju represent? We've we've actually been talking about this a little bit throughout the episode. And then I kind of put to rest the idea that Gojira is Japan and King Kong is America. It's not doesn't seem to be where the the narrative is going. So what what do they represent? I mean, I think it's interesting to think about it in two ways. Like when you think about something like Gojira, there's his origin story, which is, you know, often tied to the atomic bomb and, you know, often tied to like, we were doing nuclear testing and we woke up this, this creature that was like lying dormant or something. And then there's the effect, like there's the cause and then there's the effect. And the effect is the thing I talked about earlier, which is the pure id and the just like mass destruction and like smashing the cities and like almost like I almost want to sing that song from like Homestar Runner about like burninating the countryside, like Trogdor <laughs> yes! the Dragon Man. Burninating the countryside. No, I mean, we all have those feelings. You know, there are definitely days when I just want to like be a giant lizard and like burn some shit down. Like, I'm not going to yeah. lie. There are days, there are many days recently when I just wish I could like have like a breath weapon that was like really powerful. So I think that, you know, you have to kind of separate a little bit like the origin, which I think is important from the kind of like the final impact of the creature. And they're both important in different ways. And I think Gojira definitely is a means of dealing with the trauma of World War II and and the Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. But it's also kind of weirdly like, it's turning that trauma into something kind of cathartic, I feel like. What, what do you think? I very much agree with that. Um, I think there's no question, I mean, right there in the text, that Gojira comes from um, atomics. And also the firebombing of Tokyo is kind of reenacted um, in the 1954 film, and it's quite upsetting. Um, it's really a very dark tone in that film. I, I highly recommend if you haven't seen the original Japanese version, there's a lovely new Criterion edition of a bunch of the older Godzilla movies, and it's it's chilling. It really is a, a, a disturbing film. It reminds me a lot of Cloverfield in that way, which, you know, say what you want about Cloverfield. Um, it's still a great monster movie, and it's definitely reenacting the trauma of 9-11, and in a way that's very, very similar to the way that Gojira in 1954 reenacts the firebombing of Tokyo. The interesting thing that happens to Gojira is that they get kind of domesticated over time. Like, Gojira has a baby and then, like, fights pollution and, like, you know, eventually does some, like, dancing and kind of almost starts talking in some of the 70s movies. There's this gradual evolution from, like, terrifying force of nature to kind of, like, Japan's most awesome mascot. Gojira becomes essentially a mascot. And like that's kind of played with in some of the Godzilla movies. Like in Shin Gojira, there's like action figures and like people kind of know about the monster. And it, it kind of, the franchise is, is sort of haunted by <laughs> this cuteness um, that it's constantly having to shed in a weird way. Right. And Gojira becomes sort of a friend, right? He becomes the defender of, of Japan rather than the destroyer, right? At a certain point. Yeah. No, I think that definitely in some of the films. And I think that, um, you know, King Kong versus Gojira is a little bit like that. But, of course, in a sense, King Kong is defending Japan from Gojira. It's, it's, it's very unclear, but definitely there are... Movies in the 70s, like, say, Destroy All Monsters, 
where there's teams of like good guy monsters and bad guy monsters. And so there's like Gojira and Rodan are like kind of on the, and Mothra are kind of the good guys. And then there's like Ghidorah, who's a bad guy. And like a number of other, like Megalon is a bad guy. There's like a bunch of rando bad guys. Um, Mecha Mecha Godzilla is a bad guy, partly because Mecha Godzilla is is space technology um, from evil aliens. Yeah, it becomes kind of like, Godzilla's on our side, you know? Like, this is, like, Godzilla's kind of like um, a super weapon to defend against other super weapons. And and I think you get that sense kind of reversed in uh, a movie like Pacific Rim, mm-hmm. where the giant monsters are the bad guys, and then we have to build these giant robots, these Jaegers, mm-hmm. to fight them. And um, here's here's a clip from one of my favorite scenes from that film. Not today. Today we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today we are canceling the apocalypse. I love that movie. And I love how that's a movie where it's not about defending Japan or defending China or defending the United States or the Philippines or any of the places that are attacked by the kaiju. It's we're all in this together. You know, it's the whole world. And, And I think... That's the moment for me when we start to see a lot of allegory for climate change. Right. You know, and that that has not been absent from, from the series. I mean, obviously, back in the early 70s, Gojira versus the Smog Monster is about how smog turns into a giant monster. Like, there's this giant monster that literally embodies toxic waste. But I think there's a big difference between that and climate change, which is lashing us with super storms and causing fires and floods. And I feel like that's what Pacific Rim is jumping off of. Right. And, you know, it's interesting to think of, like, you know, the monsters as a force of nature, but also we may have to have something equally powerful in order to protect us against something that powerful. And, like, that's the kind of impulse, which obviously you can't really do with climate change. You can't fight like you can fight monsters with monsters, but you can't fight, you know, climate, global warming with global warming, unfortunately. Maybe geoengineering, I guess, would be the kind of the Jaeger to the kaiju of, of, of climate change. I think it's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. <laughs> um, and I think it's interesting to think of like these monster movies, especially the 70s ones, like Destroy All Monsters, as being almost like pro wrestling where you have heels and and faces and you have like, there's the, you know, there's... Uh, there's the good guy wrestlers and the bad guy wrestlers. And they're like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to break a chair over your head. I'm going to shave your head. I'm going to like, I'm wearing spandex and like jump fight, you know, coming off the turnbuckle or whatever. And like, you know, after having just watched glow recently, it feels like there's a certain amount of like that in some of these monster movies, like that kind of campy smackdown kind of feeling about it. So much. And I, and especially in King Kong versus Gojira, like there's literally like the main weapon that Kong uses against Gojira is biting Gojira's tail, um, which feels very like pro wrestling. (laughs) It does actually feel very pro wrestling. God. Yeah. So is there kind of a xenophobia in some of these movies where it's like, Japan is kind of facing a hostile world and is, you know. I think there is sometimes. I think more often, especially in the more recent films like Shin Gojira, it's much more about Japan being at war with itself 
and how there's this big generational gap in Japan between people who want to do things the old way and people who are embracing like new kinds of business and new kinds of new ways of doing science, new ways of tackling natural disaster. Like the the human plot in Shingojira is all about how these entrenched bureaucracies need to learn to function more like a startup with like a horizontal org structure and like just in time production of of a anti-Godzilla serum, which is basically what they create. Oh, wow. Um, so I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's very much about the spirit of Japan. It's less about fighting outsiders and more about grappling with Japan's own, own giant hidden monsters in its history. In the American Gojira films, I I feel like it's it's weird to see because I don't feel like Gojira represents anything about the United States, really. Mm-hmm. You know, like it doesn't feel like when you watch a, a Japanese Gojira film, you feel like this is about Japan in some way. And and the American films, they don't manage to, to translate it, you know, like they don't. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. How do you feel about it? I mean, yeah, the, the, a lot of the context is lost and a lot of the kind of meaning is missing. So. You know, changing gears slightly, I've been reading through a giant stack of back issues of Famous Monsters magazine, and there was one issue from several years ago, I wish I could find it now, where I read an interview with one of the guys who did the special effects and also directed a bunch of the Gojira movies, you know, for decades. And he was saying that he felt like after the Fukushima disaster of 2011, um, that they couldn't make another Gojira movie because it would be too upsetting to Japanese people to see something that reminded them of that disaster. And then, of course, you know, you fast forward to 2016 and we do get Shin Gojira, which Mm -hmm. I feel like does actually kind of comment on the Fukushima disaster. It's absolutely, I mean, because Gojira comes out of the water and is rampaging through the seaside town. And it's very, it has a lot of images that are reminiscent of the Fukushima disaster. And of course, Gojira is radioactive. Right. And you mentioned how like Cloverfield in the U.S. is kind of about 9-11, which it clearly is. I mean, it's just it's oh, yeah. right there on the freaking surface. You know, how do monster movies of the past like 15, 20 years, how do they comment on the on new challenges that are kind of the challenges of our era versus like atomic war or whatever? Well, I definitely think, as I said, that there's they're dealing with climate change. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's newer movies like Colossal, which weirdly is this kind of intimate character-driven story about a person, you know, dealing with her past and her inability to form relationships. And she's also controlling a giant monster. And right. and I think that's a, a really interesting direction that these stories are, are going in. Meg Ellison has an incredible short story about a young woman who grows to be enormous um, that's called Big Girl, that's similarly dealing with this kind of um, small personal story of like what it's like to be a woman whose body doesn't fit the norm and how people treat you, but it's also a giant monster story. So we're seeing giant monsters become a way of talking about very small, intimate things, as well as a way of talking about these global threats that are very, very hard to represent, Mm -hmm. except using a mega monster. (laughs) Like, how do you represent climate change? It's just a big, giant thing. 
And then you have like The Host, which is the Korean movie. There's been multiple movies called The Host, but the Korean movie called The Host, mm-hmm. in which, you know, the monster is kind of like explicitly pollution and contamination of, of it's, it's caused by contamination of local groundwater by the Americans in Korea. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that's about the environment, but also about, you know, imperialism and about kind of representing how the the hubris and folly and and destructiveness of like the American empire affects this this Korean family who are just kind of like swept up in this destructive situation. Well, and it's a Bong Joon-ho movie, right? right? So it also has this really dark satirical edge to it and it and and it's about kind of the Korean working class and but, how yeah. how the and so it's just it's got everything. Oh, such a great movie. Yeah, if you basically, haven't watched the host, it, it's basically see it. like if you took the movie Parasite, which Bong Joon Ho also directed, and just add a giant monster to it, that you you kind of get the host a little bit. Oh, so good. It's it's amazing. And you know So Charlie Jane, where do you want to see giant monsters go next? Wow. Such a good question. I mean, I like the idea that we can use something as huge as Giants Monsters to tell intimate personal stories. I think that that's something that we could definitely see more of. And I also love the idea that like we can deal with like the, the process of dealing with giant monsters can be about community and about like us coming together. Like individually, we're tiny little helpless little kind of ant creatures next to one of these giant monsters. We're like little bugs. But if you get enough of us together and like we all work together and, you know, put aside our differences or whatever, then we can be a giant monster like collectively. And I guess that's sort of what the Jaeger represented a weird way, like human. But also I'd love to see just like teamwork, more emphasis on teamwork, more emphasis on. We were talking when we were prepping this episode about how usually when you watch a kaiju movie, unless it's or a giant monster movie, usually the human characters are just this annoying kind of like filler. It's like, well, they couldn't afford to have like two hours of just giant monsters. So we have to look at Aaron Taylor Johnson running around for like an hour looking upset or whatever. We have to deal with human drama. We have to deal with and like oftentimes the human element in the films feels a little bit like an afterthought or feels like it's just kind of the weakest part of the movie. And, you know, what would happen if the human part of the movie was as good as the giant monster part of the movie? What would happen then? I don't know. Yeah. What, what do you think, Annalie? I think that's right. And I think that's why the host is so interesting. I think that's why Shin Gojira is so interesting. And actually the the anime series, the Planet Gojira anime series also has confusing but fascinating um, human characters. So yeah, that's where I'd like to see it going too, is kind of uh, bringing together small human stories with these big stories about how do you tackle something as big as climate change, for example. Well, let's wind up there with uh, thinking about the future direction of Kaiju. Thank you so much for listening once again. We are on Patreon. If you'd like to support us, you get lots of extras. You get audio extras. You get fish mailed to you that just disappear as soon as you pull them out of the envelope, which is really cool. Uh, And you get a chance to chat with us. And we're on Patreon at Our Opinions Are Correct. We're also on Twitter at OOACpod. And thank you so much to Veronica Simonetti for being our awesome producer. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you're getting your podcasts. And we will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.